0: Welcome to TNS, The New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with poet Allison Luderman and host Erwin Keller.
1: So welcome to The New School at Commonweal. This is the Sonoma County series. I'm so thrilled that you're all here tonight. It's always a party when the, when the poetry lovers show up. Um, which is, it seems to be what happens when, when Larry Robinson puts out the word that there's something important. If you like poetry, you must show up. People show up. Uh, so I'm Erwin Keller. I serve here at Congregation Nair Shalom in a rabbinic capacity, but tonight I get to serve in my capacity as a, um, a participant in conversation on behalf of the New School at Commonweal. And it is, a th- I was saying to Allison um, before that. Uh, when we decided to start this Sonoma County series, it was fun because I just sat and made a list of everybody that I want to have a conversation with. And some, some of you were here when I had a conversation with Larry, and, uh, and you're here again tonight. And so this is more fun for me than for any of you. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to I wanna open by introducing Allison, and I know many of you know her work. If you don't know her personally, you know her work. Uh, Allison is a poet, an essayist, and a playwright. Her books include the poetry collections Desire Zoo, which is this one, The Largest Possible Life, which is this one, and See How We Almost Fly, which is, uh, our spokesmodel here is demonstrating, um, and a collection of essays called Feral City. Allison's plays include Saying Kaddish With My Sister, Hot Water, Glitter and Spew, Oasis, and The Recruiter, and a musical called The Chain. Her writings have been published in many journals and anthologies. She's taught writing at the Writing Salon in Berkeley, the Esalen Institute, and the Omega Institute, as well as at high schools, juvenile halls, and poetry festivals. She's a political activist and a homebody. She's a dog person who fell in love with a cat. She lives in a rambling old house in Oakland with her musician husband and the aforementioned cat, dividing her time between writing and looking for her keys. (laughs) So let's welcome Alison Luterman. Before we dig into some conversation, I would like to welcome um, Kate Krista, who is one of the leaders of Rumi's Caravan. Uh, here in Sonoma County, um, to give a, give over something for us,
2: because even the word obstacle is an obstacle. Try to love everything that gets in your way. The Chinese women in flowered bathing caps, murmuring together in Mandarin, and doing leg exercises in your lane while you execute 36 furious laps, one for every item on your to-do list. The heavy-bellied man who goes thrashing through the water like a horse with a harpoon stuck in its side, whose breathless tsunamis rock you from your course. Teachers, all. Learn to be small and swim past obstacles like a minnow without grudge or memory. Thinking obstacle is another obstacle. Try to love the teenage girl leaning against the ladder showing off her new tattoo. Cette vie est la mienne. This life is mine in thick blue-black letters on her ivory instep. Be glad she'll have that to look at the rest of her life and keep going. Swim past an uncle in the lane next to yours, teaching his nephew how to hold his breath underwater, even though kids aren't supposed to be in the pool at this hour. Someday, years from now, this same boy who is kicking and flailing in the exact spot you want to touch and turn may be a young man at a wedding on a boat, raising his champagne glass in a toast when a huge wave hits, washing everyone overboard. He'll come up, coughing and spitting like he is now, but he'll come up like a cork alive, so your moment of impatience must bow in service to the larger story. Because if something is in your way, it's going your way, the way of all beings toward darkness, toward light.
0: (laughs) Thank you.
3: Thank you so much. Wow, what an honor. Thank you. So how often does that happen? Oh, not very often. (laughs) That's, that's, um, it's, it's, um, strange. It's wonderful. Yeah, not often.
1: The, um, I saw, I saw Kay give over that poem at Rumi's Caravan last summer. And I was very excited nudging my, uh, elbowing my 16-year-old and saying, um, I know the
3: poet. <laughs> I'm sure he was extremely impressed.
1: <laughs> you know, what's funny is that uh, he loved it. He loved the poem and he mm. loved Rumi's Caravan. Mm. Um, to the two 15-year-olds, uh, my, my kid and his, and his best friend. And we left. You know, I, I kept. I tried not to put them on the spot by looking at them. Right. But on the way home, I casually at stopping at you know In-N-Out Burger or whatever was the price of going to Rumi's caravan. <laughs> right. I asked, um, so um, what do you think? And and they said, oh, let's do it again next year.
3: That's great. From 15-year-olds, that's the highest praise yeah. ever yeah
1: so what so what you know what is it about poetry that that speaks to all ages? It, it is really surprising. You've done a lot of work with with young people.
3: yeah. um I well, when I was a young person a hundred years ago, it was um, you know, the language of feelings, and it was a, it's a language in which you cry, you exult, you mourn, you rage, you have your feelings all out. It still is. I mean, kids, you know, that's, it's the language of feelings. And teenagers have a lot of feelings, <laughs> in case you hadn't noticed. Uh, yeah. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. It's good to see you. It's great to see you. Um,
1: so um, Allison and I have known each other since maybe. 25 years. Something, something like that. Something um, like that. Since the mid-1990s, or early 1990s. We used to be part of um, a little Jewish Uh, spiritual group.
3: Queer Minion.
1: Queer Minion. Mm -hmm. Um, Marsha's daughter was was also part of that, the original Queer Minion. Yeah. And it was this strange group of like all these...
3: Self-described queer Jews who hung out and we did Shabbats. Pagan
1: witches and radical fairies.
3: Right, exactly, (laughs)
1: yes. And we would get together (laughs) once a month for Shabbat.
3: And eat and drink and and but we would sing. We would dab sing. it yeah, together. Yeah, we sang, yeah. It was wonderful.
1: And the, and the boys would wear skirts. Mm-hmm. And,
3: and the girls would wear whatever they want. I don't know. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and that was really right after you came to California.
3: Yeah, it was.
1: We were, you were telling me over, over dinner that that was a, a pivotal moment for you.
3: Yeah, I mean, I came to California, and it took a couple of years, but the, I was married at the time when I moved to California, my first husband had roots in California, and then we were out here for a few years, and that marriage ended. And I was, ah, I was kind of in, free, I was not kind of, I was in free fall. And um, Queer Minion was one place that I landed, among others. Yeah,
1: it was a sweet place. I, it, it's funny. Um, preparing for tonight, I reread a lot of your poems. Yeah. Um, and and they were and your you, you know your poems are very self-revealing and um, about, you know, they're very biographical. Yeah. And there's a way in which when you're at home reading reading um, someone's poetry, it's just poetry. Right. And now I'm with you and I'm hearing about the relationship and I feel like a voyeur because <laughs> yeah. I, I know stuff yeah. about the emotional quality right. of your wedding and the emotional right. quality of your divorce.
3: Right, right.
1: Um, and that,
3: that is my life. Like, a, a lot of people who I have never met know something about the emotional quality of pivotal moments in my life. Well, and the, the
1: book in which you write about that marriage and that divorce also has a lot of sex in it, too. Yeah, it does. So, does Thanks
3: for bringing that up. Well, I figured let's get it out of the way in case yeah. your dad is watching. Hi, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> why yeah. the that one yeah yeah it does it sex yeah not just sex but queer sex in it let's just say that yeah as well um, so uh... So the um, and your question is
1: well, I don't know if I have one. You know, one of the things I decided I, I, you know, I wrote a bunch of uh, yeah. a list of a bunch of kinds of questions I want to ask, and then I, and then in a very geeky way, I indexed it with poems,
3: uh, great. so that
1: you know every every bit of conversation could be punctuated by your, you know, reading an example of that. Right. But um, I'm also willing to do it this way that when I ask. A stupid question or I 'm floundering, you can just say
3: I'll rescue you with a poem
1: Rescue me with a poem okay, I'd love that to sounds read good. yeah or something like that okay those you have two very beautiful poems in the book uh, in largest possible life about that marriage mm. actually now uh, I'm not talking about the the um, the, inside, the the middle of the marriage, mm. but the wedding day mm. and the day you submit your divorce papers mm. and both of those poems are you, you write them about. The Civil Servant. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> yeah. What? Say, can you tell us a little bit about that and why that ended up being the hook for explaining this experience?
3: You know, it just happened. I, I didn't do it on, it wasn't a conscious decision. I mean, I do notice that. I also have a lot of poems about, like, grocery store clerks. There, if you notice, I, there's more than one cashier, you know. So I... <laughs> One is I don't get out much. As a writer, I'm home alone a lot. So when I do, like, whoever I have contact with, that's a big deal to me. You know, like, the cashier that I at Trader Joe's, like, we have a conversation. Like, you know, that's my conversation. So, um, but I, I think it's a... Yeah, those women, they were, they were women, too, both of them. There was a Justice of the Peace that we did the legal part of our wedding with, and then we had my best friend married us. And then... Um, the just, the, wh- whatever you call her, the it was like notary the, the public. the court clerk or something. Yeah, notary oh, public uh-huh. at the bank who yeah. n- mm. know, ratified my divorce papers. Um, well, I, I think that those interactions were cultural exchanges as well as, I mean, there was the big story of the marriage, but there was also the cultural context in which all this stuff happens. And context is really important to me, and culture is really important to me.
1: I mean, also both of these, both of these civil servants um, have a a quality of, you know, they're a little bit of the the judge's eye view.
3: Yeah, you
1: know, in both of these poems, uh, I'm I'm trying to remember in the in the one with the justice of the peace, she comes and gives a warning about getting married.
3: She was. she didn't get a chance to do her mandatory counseling session because we were so arrogant and young that we said we didn't need it and which you know and so she was trying she was like well well it's really hard you know which actually it is you know and and we should have maybe taken advantage of her you know counseling although I don't know right if if that
1: would have helped
3: I'm not sure that it would have but yeah yeah,
1: and, and so she was sort of the voice of the government. She was the voice right. of, the, you know, the authority telling you, right. this is what will happen in your marriage. And she actually makes kind of a dire prediction around,
3: right, it. right. Which looking <laughs> back, you know, was kind of prescient. I think also maybe it was because of a sense of that I had a, the violation of, you know, love is this wild, free thing, and then when you get married, you put it into a government form. You know, and I think even though I was doing it, uh, I had conflict, I had ambivalence about it. So that's probably why I focused there, because when I write poetry, I go for the conflict, because I'm also a drama queen, in case you didn't notice. <laughs> and drama is all about conflict. Well, I also imagine that
1: when you're in the throes of a divorce, yeah. um, there, there is a big risk that your poetry can just be, you know, I'm unhappy, I hate you, right. or... You know, yeah. and, and to be able to find the hook of that interaction. Right. Um, and it made me wonder, in, in a lot of your poems, um, I notice that there is a very a casual interaction or something that you obliquely observe, or the, the, peop- the people in the swimming pool. Right. You know, and, and I'm wondering in... In your process,
0: I love that. Yeah. <laughs> in my process. In your yeah.
1: process. Yeah. I, I mean, at, and then after you answer the question, you can, you can tell us if you actually have a process. I
3: don't um, know that I do, but yeah. <laughs> but, at, you know,
1: at what point when you, when you hear somebody say, when you see her demonstrate, showing her new tattoo, Yeah. at what point is like, oh, that... That goes in a poem. That goes in a poem. <laughs>
3: Um, I don't know that it was when I saw her demonstrating her tattoo, but again, there was that irking, feeling irked. You know, I was pissed off because I couldn't get a lane. I mean, when you're a swimmer, what you really want above all things is you want to get a lane, and I was belonged to this 24-hour gym that promised the pool, and the pool was like never open. They were always cleaning it, or it was always, you know, and but it was always filthy, and there was always people in it, and so... Um, I think uh, it's like the oyster and the pearl. You know, when there's a little grit in a situation, that's where I focus my attention. And, um, but I think also, you know, I grew up in Lexington, Massachusetts, which was a very homogenous community, to put it mildly. And I've never stopped marveling at the wonderfulness of living in an urban area with all kinds of people. And I'm a, you know, and it's just wonderful to me to be around different People, people speaking different languages, people from different cultures. You know, I love that.
1: And you don't shy away from the tension around that either. Right,
3: and it does create tension sometimes.
1: You refer to yourself in in poems as the white lady.
3: Yeah, I definitely am the white lady walking around my neighborhood. Totally. The white lady with the big floppy hat. That would be me. Yeah. So, um, you know,
1: living where you live is in itself a commitment. It's... It's a thing it's, it's a, a thing it, there's yeah. po- there's a politics to it right And there's also art to it. you bring it into you bring it into your work. Tell, tell us a little bit about where you live and and how that finds its way as an expression of your politics and in creating your politics and also your poetry.
3: I live about two miles east of Lake Merritt in Oakland so um, it's a little bit East Oakland, not deep east um, but medium East um, a little, below the Laurel District and near Fruitvale. I usually tell people I live in the Fruitvale. I'm about a mile from Fruitvale, BART. The neighborhood is um, mixed. It's everybody. There's a lot of um, Mexican-American people. There's a lot of uh, African-American people. There's a lot of Asian-American people, Vietnamese, Hmong. Um, It's just the UN. Um, There's a sprinkling of white people. And I've been there for 20 years. and I like it. I mean, I, it's, a good, it's a good place to live. And it's become like a, a character in my poems. I mean, the neighborhood is really a big part of I keep struggling to describe it properly. I feel like I can never really convey. And you know what's funny? I found a Jewish c- uh, cemetery a couple, like a half a mile from my house, off of High Street. I don't know if you, you know, like a, 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 a Uh, Fairfax I just was walking there one day on Mother's Day I think my dead mother led me there Mm. I swear it's a tiny little Jewish cemetery in the middle of a not at all Jewish neighborhood and I'm not sure what the story is behind it
1: are you a cemetery walker
3: I am yeah I love to walk in the cemetery yeah
1: Yeah, it's always a good
3: reading yes it is you read the dates you see how old everybody was when they died you wonder about the stories yeah exactly yeah. See the family groupings.
1: Yeah. We'll look I guess we'll look forward to seeing it Cemetery in the poem Cemetery poems,
3: yeah.
1: Um, Billy Collins has a poem about everybody suggesting topics for poems. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> is this a is this a problem that you live with?
3: Um, it, sometimes people do have this, you know, well, you should write about, and I'm like, actually, I think you should write that poem, you know, because nobody can, yeah, I, my, it's, such, so, it's such a weird idiosyncratic thing. One of my my one of my closest friends, Ruth Schwartz, is a poet, and we take walks together, and we'll see something, and she's like, well, that's, when it, that's for your poem. You know, usually it's like a dead rat or something. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, that's mine. And, you know... <laughs> <laughs> I'll take that one, um, but you know, nobody else can, you know, it's, it's a, for me, it's the putting together of things, it's the juxtaposition, it's not one thing, it's usually like three things, the coming together, a triangulation of stuff. And uh,
1: in terms of things that you, over, that become hooks, yeah, yeah, that become hooks, things the in the poem. environment that you yeah. pull in, but then also you do this thing where it becomes about something. Yeah. Right, because the the poem in the pool is not about the pool. Right. Or arguably is not about the pool. No. Yeah. Do you do you generally know when you start when you start writing what it's going to end up being about?
3: No. A lot of times I don't. I don't think I know what I think until I write. I you know I I don't I'm you know I mean I'm sure I do think because I you know wander around and there's chatter going on, but in terms of really. Real thinking it happens for me with a pen in my hand or a keyboard mm. under my fingers i I think out my you know and then the rewriting the drafting and the revising it helps me hone it down into now this is what I think has this been lifelong for you uh, well when I was a kid, I was a daydreamer, but yeah i mean it's i don't it's hard you know like we were talking at dinner a little bit about planning and I'm not a very good planner, you know, and uh, I need to make a list. I can't just, in my mind, make a plan so well.
1: Have you been writing poetry your
3: whole life? Yeah. I started when I was about five or six, six probably. So that's over 50 years now. Yeah.
1: Is, um, what is the, so I... (laughs) <laughs> oh, I don't know quite how to ask this. Yeah, I, I, with all the poetry lovers and poets in the room, I'm very yeah. very aware of asking stupid poetry questions. Um,
3: there, there are no stupid poetry questions. Actually, there are, but I'm sure you're, you're supposed to say that. Only
1: stupid poetry questioners. Okay, here's a
3: stupid uh, poetry question. Do not ask me, so why don't poems rhyme? If you don't ask that, I'll be happy. Yeah.
1: They, they don't? Wait. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Rhyme. No rhyme. Right. <laughs> Su- Susie Pillar here made me start listening to Hamilton last month.
3: It's so good. It's fantastic.
1: It's, yeah, it's unbelievable. It's I can't great. Th- the complexity of the rhyme, the yeah. dizziness and complexity. I know. Of it's amazing. Unexpectedness of so much of the rhyme.
3: It's incredible. You have to listen to it like multiple times to even catch it all. Yeah.
1: And that was exciting, it was actually exciting to me. It was like the rhyme revival.
3: Yeah, no, rhyme is actually making a comeback. It has gotten a bad rap and kids have brought it back and it's actually, it's a thing. But here's the thing about rhyme. It's like playing guitar. It's easy to play guitar badly. And I speak from experience because I play guitar badly. You can learn three chords and muddle through something. But to rhyme really well is actually hard. You know, it's harder than it looks.
1: If you play three chords, you can play guitar in synagogue.
3: (laughs) Um. (laughs) Okay, good. I got a job then.
1: (laughs) Uh, At what point did... um, So, oh, so the stupid question that I was thinking about has to do with, like, what is the degree to which poetry becomes your... When does poetry become your preferred method of, of expression or of of giving over an idea as opposed to... Because you've written essays too.
3: Right. Sometimes I don't know if something is going to be a poem or an essay. You know, it's like, if it's a... If it has too many ideas in it, it's probably better to make it an essay because the poem needs to have a certain lightness so it can fly. So for me, I mean, my poems are better as experiences, as, you know, encounters, um, and and they have to have a buoyancy. So if I've got... A lot of stuff that might be better for an essay.
1: Do you like to read poetry?
3: Yeah. Well, good. You know, I'm picky and critical. Yeah, I do. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I wouldn't have known that about you. Um, the, uh, you you are the, you know, the Jewish white lady with the big floppy hat. Right. And, um, me. and we met in a Jewish context. Right. Um, what is the the role that being Jewish plays in your life now, and also in your in your work,
0: mm. in your writing?
1: because been... you did this, you did the thing that everybody does to me now. Yeah. at dinner. You did the I'm such a bad Jew,
3: right? And I refused thing. to order anything with pork, even though we because were at a Vietnamese I was restaurant. Right. <laughs> well, and if you hadn't been a rabbi, like if, if we'd been sitting together ten years ago when you were what not, a, when, when I was a drag, drag queen, queen, I would have gotten the, the pork. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right, because because
1: the, the drag queen outlook on pork is very different, right? Um, than the rabbinical it's outlook. It's not forbidden to drag queens, right? But um,
3: but you got prawns, and aren't they just as bad? I was noticing that. Yeah, it's, they're smaller, so yeah, right. Um,
1: the infraction is, is
3: it's a fractional infraction. Um,
1: but now, yeah. now we've given you a little thinking time. Yeah. So,
3: so um, being Jewish, my brain, I have a Jewish brain, obviously. It's convoluted, and it, it goes like this. You know, my brain is, is so Jewish that I can't get away from that. You know, the way I think, the way I talk, the way I articulate, it's, it's in me. Um, and I think I have a Jewish soul, whatever that means. You know, and the kind of the humanitarian, human... The fact that the human aspect is so strong for me is, I think, a Jewish thing. What do you mean by that,
1: the human aspect?
3: I mean, I'm not Mary Oliver. God bless her. And I think she's wonderful. But, you know, I, I'm there's people in all my poems. I, I think it's, you, you'd be hard-pressed to find a poem of mine that doesn't have people in it. So it's kind of an urban, peoplely perspective, so I'm not writing about the trees, even though I love trees. You would need the, the flock of geese to <laughs> collide with <laughs> collide Yes, there with would the have to be drama, and they, yes so yeah, I mean she's, she'll you know write about the roses, and there's just the roses, there's no people, and I, I think she's wonderful, and that will never be me, you know there will always be people, it's a shtetl, my poems each of my poems is like a little shtetl so that's what I mean, you know, I think that is part of me Um, and the music, of the minor music, the kind of melancholy with joy mixed that is so much part of our culture and our consciousness, I think that's just in me. Uh,
1: See, I know what that means musically, but tell me what that means poetically a little bit more.
3: Okay, well, poetically, it means the beautiful with the painful um, in the same line, in the same image, right? The broken with the radiant together. You know, it's just like Leonard Cohen, our country person. You know, there's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. To me, that's very Jewish, mm-hmm. you know, and, that's, and it's poetry, obviously. Mm-hmm. So that's, I think, how we as culturally see things. We don't think, you know, that God is wonderful and is going to fix all our problems. We think it's terrible and wonderful at the same time. Mm-hmm. Don't we?
1: I thought God is a cloud. Allison has a, a right.
3: What What right.
1: is it called? I don't remember it what it's was, called. Uh, uh, it was about
3: when the rabbi came to visit. Um, well, it was what my second husband and I were getting. It was pre, you know, we did get premarital counseling from a rabbi because I really wanted to do it right that time, right? So, so Rabbi David, who's the least dogmatic person in the world, came over to ask us, you know, what do you want in your ceremony and blah, blah, blah. And. My husband is not Jewish, and so he got very nervous because he was afraid that, you know, he that Rabbi David was going to give him the a test and he would fail. Like, you know, the, he, he isn't Jewish enough because he's not Jewish at all, and that he doesn't even believe in God, and that that would be a problem. And I was like, I don't think Rabbi David believes in God. It's fine. Um, <laughs> so don't worry. And he was like, he couldn't, you know, that was that's a hard thing for a non-Jew to wrap their brain around that a rabbi might not believe in God because... I think ministers mostly do. So I don't know, but I think they do. So
1: so Rabbi David came over, uh, you, yeah. you put out the pork hors d'oeuvres.
3: <laughs> we did not have pork. I think he's a vegetarian. We had a lovely spread with hummus and all that. And um, and he said, so, you know, what do you think about God? He was just making conversation. He was, I think it was, what about God? Maybe not making conversation, but, you
1: yeah. know. Uh, there was probably a little bit of agenda to it. There was, Yeah, that.
3: he wanted to know how much God stuff to put in the ceremony, mm-hmm. but he wasn't doing a quiz for, you know, the, a pass-fail. <laughs> And, you know, I was like, well, I don't know. You know, sometimes I think this and sometimes I think that. And um, it changes from year to year. And Rabbi David said something like, that's very stable of you. Because with me, it changes from, you know, hour to hour.
1: <laughs> uh, I've had that poem pinned up in my, in my office upstairs for years.
3: Really? Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that, Erwin. Yeah, Yep.
1: Yeah, it's true.
3: Um, oh, that's nice.
1: The, uh, right, because I think... I I don't I think you shared that with me at some point, and I have a, a different version than the version you you ultimately published.
3: You know, I, I'm always revising, and even after things have appeared in the sun, I revise them some more, and I just never stop.
1: And then you can say to people, "Oh, you know me from the sun version."
0: of
3: Right, the right, right.
0: Um. You are listening to a conversation with poet Alison Luderman and Irwin Keller. Yeah. I'm I'm seeing
1: looks of recognition.
3: <laughs> can you hear? Oh, you want to hear oh, one you of want the, the poems? Yeah, a poem. let's hear some that poems. One? You want to hear that one? Yes.
4: Okay, can I can. It
1: yes, of course okay. I do. All right, you're so organized. Uh, or maybe I don't. Oh, oh you we want to hear you? some poems. Okay, well let's let's cut this conversation crap. Yeah. Um, I I just noticed that I still have the receipt. Oh, how lovely! I bought this at Mama Bears in nineteen. 19- <laughs> oh, that's great. In, Mama Bears two thousand one. Oh
3: my God, still, that's it still when exists. it came out. I don't think it's still there. I no. think it's been gone for a while. Do you think
1: it's, it's not in this book. It's in Desire Zoo, Yeah, the,
3: the rabbi poem is in Desire Zoo. Um, let's see. Uh,
1: Here, I can use two hands. Okay, thanks.
3: Um, Mama Bears, I saw Eve Ensler there wearing red leather pants when Vagina Monologues first came out. It was very exciting. Okay.
1: Oh, I happened to, I had the bookmark there.
3: That was great. Okay, so oh, it's called What About God? The rabbi comes to visit. We lay out cookies and tea, tamari almonds, stuffed grape leaves, and strips of sweet red peppers. I hide magazines, pick up clutter, although the rabbi wouldn't notice anyway. He looks like a poli-sci professor in his soft knitted cap, carries a laptop under one arm, asks only for an electrical outlet, takes 2% milk, and tells us he won't sign the certificates of straight couples until he can do the same for his gay congregants. This was back in 2007 or 2009. Um, Fine. We sit on the sofa holding hands, and he asks us in the most neutral way possible about God. What do we believe? His tone of voice, his face, his manner, all suggest it would be okay if one of us answered blue, or the other one said, I saw God once in the Greyhound bus station in Chicago, bumming cigarettes off the loiterers who were stranded there, but I haven't seen her since. It would be okay to say, God is dead. I sent flowers to the funeral, or I danced on his grave. Lee says, God is beyond our knowing. I want to say God is a cloud of our collective confusion, humming, buzzing like a swarm of bees. I think of God as an aggregate, a congregation of stars, an infinity of dust. I say my conception of God has changed, is changing from year to year to year. The rabbi raises a mild eyebrow. Really, that's very stable of you. My concept of God changes from hour to hour, like the weather. Aha! You see, I think, sitting back. I was right. A cloud.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So now, I, now, I'm, now I'm having the problem of looking at topics in order to aim for the poems I really want to hear you read.
3: Which poems do you want to hear? You know hear what, let's just them?
1: go to a poem that yeah. I really would love to hear you read. Um, I want to hear you read um, Watching the Giraffes.
3: Oh, yeah. Is okay. that OK with yeah, you? Yeah, that's fine. So that, I was sitting with my little goddaughter um, at the zoo, the Oakland Zoo. I think she was about six at the time. Watching the giraffes. The baby giraffe stands in the shadow of the tall mother body, both of their astonishing necks marked with a perfect mosaic pattern, like kitchen linoleum. The mama bends to lick the soft nubbins above his ears. How close the gods come to us sometimes. How quietly. Then, an even taller one, the father, who has been gazing off into the distance, his small head atop that neck like a long, lonesome train whistle high above everything, lets loose a Niagara of yellow pea, and another giraffe ducks a swan-like neck down, down, to catch a deep, hot mouthful of urine then undulates back up, swan-like, elegant, gulping, and swallowing. So that too is part of it, how they take what they are thirsty for, without apology. As I am drinking in the gentle weight of the child's small, trusting body, leaning against my arm on the bench at the zoo, Both of us watching the animals without saying anything. And you know, every time I would see my goddaughter after that and we'd talk about the zoo, and she was like, do you remember when the the giraffe drank the other giraffe's pee? I was like, yes. So, seeing
1: something so unusual, so right. unexpected, I mean, right. maybe not unusual, but really yeah, unexpected. Yeah, very unexpected. And something that, you know, uh, we have so many layers of cultural yeah, um, prohibition stuff on. around. Right. And, and to be able to turn it really into something so beautiful and so much about taking what you want without apology. Right.
0: How,
1: how did you, uh, I mean, how did you find sort of where to go with that?
3: I don't, I can't find it ahead of time. I have to walk through it. And, you know, I mean, there's, of course, there's a tendency to want to just edit that out. Like, that was, that's too weird. I can't drink, talk about a giraffe drinking another giraffe's pee in a poem. Like, what, you know. But that's what happened. And it was kind of a striking moment. And so, in writing that moment, the next moment came. But it's like, you have to live that moment before you can get to the next one. Well,
1: and you also followed the example of the giraffe, right? Because you ended up, what the giraffe did without apology, you ended up writing about without apology.
3: Right, and we're animals, you know? And there's just, we are, you know?
1: Um, you have done lots of different kinds of work yeah. in your life outside of outside of writing. Yes. Um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about, about some, of some of my jobs. Yeah, some of your jobs. <laughs> because they find their way into your, yeah. into your poem, and you've had access to lots of experience yeah. that, you know, um, that many of us haven't had.
3: Yeah. Um, Well, I was telling you, I worked at San Francisco General Hospital many years ago as an HIV test counselor. It was in the 90s when HIV was, it was a very different uh, landscape (coughs) for HIV than it is now. And uh, my job was to uh, give, uh, I was the one with the clipboard, you know, that gave people their results and made sure their consent was informed, like told them, you know, we thought through what are the consequences of getting the test and all that. And then I worked at Glide Memorial Church for a while, and again, HIV, but a lot of double, triple diagnosis, so a lot of people with drug and alcohol issues or mental health issues, and sometimes HIV, too. And I worked for an outfit called Urban Health Study that was interviewing um, IV drug users. Yeah. Uh, so, I did, yeah, I did that. I needed to earn a living, and once I got started doing that work, I realized I could do it. Not everybody wants to do that. And... For me, it, it was right around that time of the divorce and I, was, um, I had been broken open, so I, didn't ha- I wasn't judging anybody. I mean, I was just trying to keep myself glued together and it was kind of good to be at a job where I just showed up and people were in need and I was kind of needy and we were all kind of a mess and that was okay.
1: There wasn't really paperwork between you and what you were doing. I mean it was very direct, raw human contact, and
3: yeah, there was some documentation, but not not much
1: and you write about you write about this a lot Is you' writing about this in retrospect, or is you or were you writing were you writing these poems
3: while you were doing this work? The poems in the first book were written they that's the most raw book, yeah, and those were written at the time, yeah. And, I mean, at the time, I was living alone for the first time in my entire life. I was, like, in my 30s. I'd never lived alone. And so I'd go to work. I'd come home, and there were some neighborhood kids that would come over and ring my bell. I was, like, the neighborhood cookie lady. And, um, but then, you know, when the kids weren't there, I was just me and, you know, I, I, don't, I didn't have a TV, and I just wrote. It was a very productive, lonely time. But, mm-hmm. <laughs> well, Yeah
1: and the and the images that you give over some of them are pretty harrowing
3: yeah that I, that's the reality i mean and i'm still and you know and it's it is heartbreaking i mean i'm in the city as you said but you know there's times when my husband and i talk about leaving just cuz it's hard it's hard
1: in rereading some of those poems it made me want to ask you if there are subject matters that you won't write about or that are too difficult or or that you would like to write about and you haven't found a way yet
3: I have been trying to write about white privilege for a long time Um, and it I, I have written about it but it just comes out abstract and I'm not good at writing about ideas like big general ideas there are poets who can do it I'm not sure that I'm that poet I have to write about specific instances and you know, little micro things, I can't, so there's a wonderful book by uh, Claudia Rankine called Citizen, which is her perspective as an African-American woman, a lot of microaggressions and, you know, just what it's like, and when I read it, I really wanted to write experiences as a white person, what it, you know, what is that, but I... Didn't do a very good job. I mean, I I worked it. I mean, I tried. I, I wrote a ton of stuff, but I don't. I'm not satisfied with any of it. Mm-hmm. So, I I don't want to put it out until it's, you know, right.
1: Love life, sex life, those are all game. Has, <laughs> ha, 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 has your willingness uh, to yes, be disclosed? Yes, Yeah, I am.
3: I am has less, that changed?
1: Yes. Has that cha- okay.
3: It has changed. I did put a lot of stuff out there. I have no regrets about putting it out there, but I'm much more discreet now. And I don't know, it's, it's age? I'm sure it's age. And, you know, I'm in a second marriage and I, you know, can't write about my sex life without exposing uh, another person. And um, I think there's a lot to be said. Actually, that's, that is is a topic, a lot to be said about being older and sexuality at, and being older. And I'm not... Able to quite get it out yet. I've been trying, you know. It's I, I I'm kind of a perfectionist too. Like it has to be right before I'll put it out. So there's stuff I'm writing, but I'm sharing it with my closest friends, and I'm not publishing it yet.
1: <laughs> there's um there's a poem I'm gonna ask you to read.
3: Yeah.
1: Um, and there's a little story that goes with this, which is that I don't remember quite how many years ago Allison sent out an email saying i forgot if it was my computer was stolen or oh yeah it, or
3: it my, was my house was broken into twice and the computer was stolen both times
1: now here's the but here's the here's the next part is that i don't do backups and <laughs> <Yeah>, i <know.
0: laughs>
1: and the, I lost and the request in the email was if i've ever sent you one of my poems would you send it back yeah. So, uh, so before I, so th- there was one that I sent you that yeah. you hadn't remembered writing. Right. Um, so that's what and I'm going to. now
3: I ask. don't remember that poem. Oh, which poem?
1: Well, it's it, it, for Holly and Mark.
3: Oh, their wedding poem. Mm-hmm.
1: And it's so beautiful, and I've used it at weddings.
3: Oh my God.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But um, but first, what's up with that? What's up with the, the no backups? I'm yeah.
3: Very technically, um, it, I technology is, and me are not good friends. I, so I've got finally. So I have one of those backup thingies, but I'm not sure. I don't think I'm using it correctly, and I think things are in the. I have iCloud, but I don't know if things are actually going in the cloud or not because I don't know. I'm a twenty-first no, 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 century
1: no, no. That's, person. No, I, I understand that, and there, there might be somebody here willing to volunteer you have to help track that for you. You know,
3: when you have kids, you have sixteen-year-olds who will do that shit for you. But I no,
1: I, no I understand, but I'm also wondering what it's what it's like to be me. <laughs> <laughs> it's very hard. I think this whole night is what yeah. it's like to be you, yeah. but also that there's there's stuff that you've created, yeah, and it became ephemeral, right? When it wasn't necessarily intended to become ephemeral, and what is what does that feel like? Does it feel like something? Uh,
3: there's a lot of stuff out there that I created, and it went out into the world, and. It had a, a life, and it's continuing to have a life, and I barely remember it. I'm, I, You know, I, there's a... My poems have come back to me in weird ways because before everything was digitized, because we are of the same generation, you know, so, I mean, I published some stuff, I don't know, 30 years ago or 25 years ago, and before everything was online, and um, somebody, you know, is holding on to that clipping, you know, or that magazine, and I don't have a copy of it anymore, and I moved, and my house was broken into, and I'm not, I'm not an obsessive record keeper. And so I'm actually more concerned with the poem that I worked on today. Like, that's where my energy is going. Is like, this poem I'm working on today and the poem I scribbled in my notebook that when I, you know, tomorrow I'm going to type up. That's what I'm thinking about.
1: So you're, in a certain way for you, you know, it's there's a, pro, the poem represents a certain uh personal emotional process and yeah. then you can let go let, yeah. you leave a trail of poems behind I do you, like yeah <laughs> rather than papering your walls yeah, with
3: yeah yeah trying
1: and I'm not to hang holding on to them.
3: On, I'm not holding on to them I mean I'm really glad the books are out there and they're they're good containers but for every poem in each of these books I wrote you know 25 other poems that didn't make it in you know so there's hundreds of poems that are just compost um, and I you know I wrote a poem for I think I wrote a poem for my dad's wedding I can't remember You know, I've written poems for various people's weddings, and unless they, you know, bring them back to me, I don't always remember if I did or not.
1: (laughs) So I'll I'll bring this one back to you. Okay, great. Um, This is it for Holly and Mark.
3: Oh, that's so sweet. So we have these mutual friends, Holly and Mark, who got married. God, it's been, like, 20 years? Yeah, 20 years. Okay. For Holly and Mark. All our lives we were longing for each other, Even in the womb, even before the womb, when we were protoplasm, when we were cells of dreaming dust, when we were part of God and didn't know we were God, we were dreaming of the day we'd come to earth again and meet each other and share a kitchen and fight over who knew the best way to make soup and say, I know you, heart of my heart, dream of my dream... Let every day be our wedding day. Let us marry each other in the grocery store and in the garden, pulling weeds together, and in the car at every stoplight. Let's renew our vows. And when night falls, let's step under the chuppah of stars. And when the alarm clock rings too early in the morning, let's remember to get married again and again to the day. For a moment between lifetimes, we were separated, and it seemed you had forsaken me. Then I woke up and heard you humming in the bathroom. Your shoes were under my bed, pointed in the direction we had agreed long ago to walk together. Thank you. I forgot all about that poem. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <sighs> I'm for <proclaimed>. I'm for <laughs> You know what? Um I belong to an improv troupe now and um it's not like a sketch comedy improv, it's like roll around on the floor and you know, it's dance and singing and I also improvise poems for the for for performances. So I've said many poems that you know just come and I and I they don't get written down and they they're just they what, happen is that? What, is,
1: what is that like? What is it like to produce poetry on the spot that Never makes it onto paper.
3: Well, first it was scary because the director of the troupe just kind of said, "Allison, do a poem," and kind of threw me out there, and I was like, "Okay," and I didn't know if I could because I thought I, and then I just started, you know, blah, 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 and it just stuff came out, so it's fine, you know. If if I I feel like I'm not. If you do it enough, you know, there's just a compost heap. That's sort of the way I put it. You, you, there's a big compost heap of images and ideas and cosmology and conversation and feelings and stuff. So I don't have to be precious and hold on to each thing because it's like, you know, like our fig tree just gives figs. You know, she's not like, here's my one fig. It's like, no, there's a million of them, you know, and so have one.
1: I want to I talk to you briefly about grief.
3: Yeah.
1: And then I want to talk about healing in sort of a global way. Yeah. And I still want to have time for everybody to ask questions. Um, okay. And maybe to request a poem or two into the, the, the Luderman jukebox. Um, <laughs> um, you lost your mother 11 years ago? More. No, more.
3: 16 years ago. Sixteen
1: years ago. Sixteen years ago, and um, and I was reading one of your poems,
3: mm.
1: remembering her, and um, uh, I lost my mother a few years ago, mm. and and the way in which um, I, I was struck in the poem by the way in which objects become the portal um, into uh, in, into not just the memory, but sort of um, objects have the ability to um, uh, reconstitute. The yeah. person who's missing.
0: Yeah,
1: and uh, so uh, so I wanted to ask you, you know, how how your mother's death affected your writing. Yeah, and uh, and also ask you to to read the poem Amber.
3: Yeah, I would be happy to read Amber. Um, I don't know exactly how her. I mean, I wrote about her death, and I wrote about her. I'm still writing about her, uh, and. Um, I'm thinking a lot about her in this particular political moment in which we find ourselves because my mother was an activist. My mother stood out on the village green, you know, Lexington, there's town green because it's New England, and she was demonstrating, you know, she was standing out there for moratoriums against the Vietnam War, you know. She was, um, she would have been on the Women's March, she absolutely would have been on the Women's March if she were alive. Um, She had very strong senses of right and wrong and very strong convictions um, so I, I love that part of her. In fact, my mother took me to demonstrate at Nixon's inaugural <laughs> in 1972. I was 14, and she didn't drive. We took a bus to Washington, D.C. from Massachusetts all night. We, drove, we rode on this bus with all these other protesters. We marched. With wearing black shrouds, and I had a sign that said Hanoi. She had a sign that said Saigon. Hung around our necks, white makeup, like we were dead. And she let me eat a chocolate donut, which was unheard of. Because <laughs> my mother was a health food nut before there were health food nuts, and so I had I got to eat a chocolate donut for breakfast, which is a major takeaway from that trip. But you know, I, I it's, like, <laughs> it's like
1: the gateway drug to pork.
3: <laughs> I know. <laughs> but you know. Um, I think she's just, she's part of me, so I don't know how you do this grief thing. I don't think that there's any kind of stages, you know, it's just there.
1: Yeah, that stage thing is a little it's, bit overrated. Right. Um, you know, in, um, in, um, in Jewish tradition, you know, you have a seven-day period, right. period, and you have a 30-day period, and you have a year-long period, during which you actually, there's a word for you. You're an avil. There's this right. word that describes you, and... And and you have this status, and people are aware of it, and they and they give you wider birth
0: right. and
1: they they're understanding when you when you lose your shit right. for no no apparent reason, um, and then there are the an, you know there's the annual right. annual cycle that keeps that keeps coming up, but in this culture that we live in, there's you know I I have a, f- a friend um, the last um, the last. Um, New school talk that we did here was with Chaz Noel mm. um, about the radical fairies, and his husband died unexpectedly last week. Wow. And um, and I was talking to him, and he was and sort of the friends who were visiting had left, and he said, "So I guess um, now we move on," and um, which he doesn't believe. Like right. he understand. Right. He was saying that ironically, but he was reflecting, you know, the the culture that we have of. You know, grief is it, it, grief is not polite. Right. And, you know, I don't know how not to see certain objects and be swept away right. by grief for my mother. Yeah. And I don't want to not be swept away right. by that grief. That grief is what I have left. Yeah. Right. Um, it, it takes, it fills the absence.
3: Yeah. Um, it's what makes, it, I mean, that's, I was going to say it's what makes us human, except I think that animals grieve as well. I mean, elephants grieve. Mm-hmm. So it's, if you use the word human in a bigger way to include animals, it's what makes us, you know, connected and, yeah,
0: have soul.
1: Yeah. So I, I, so this poem, um, Amber, really, um, really struck me. You listeners at home can have this by just going to Amazon.
3: Okay. <laughs> Emma. Or your closest independent bookstore. Yeah. Um, amber. Oh, yeah, my mother always used wore, wore a lot of amber. She really she loved it. Um, and I inherited her amber earrings. Um, amber. Two long teardrops of it graze my shoulder coolly. As my mother's tucking in touch was cool, nights she and my father went out, in the glamour of their long-ago youth. How I held my breath then, not wanting her to go. She went anyway, gone for good, 11 years now. These earrings I've inherited glow mellow against skin, reflecting, refracting, light of late August, caught in their elegant oblongs, dark honey of the inmost hive. And now they swing awkward out of place against my wrinkling neck, this wind that's always at my back. Amber was her song, her go-to color, wine at sunset, peaches poached in fire. How we live to rue. How love refracted, deflected, bounces back, catches me off guard. How we missed each other, she and I. Even when she was alive, so that now, all these years later, I feel her as a coolness brushing my collarbone, a tug at the lobe. You guys are so nice. You're with your humming. That's really nice. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, hmm. it's great.
1: We feel very free in this county. That's good. That's good. And we have, and there's a, a real poetry scene.
0: Yeah.
3: This.
1: You know, we yeah, have, no, I
3: got that, yeah. You,
1: know, you got real poets. Real poets, and we're not, And I think we're not a community of, of beginner listeners.
3: Yeah, that's um, good, yeah. I want to say, too, it was not the easiest relationship, you know, and my mother was sick for many years before she died, so there was a lot of pre-grieving grieving as well. So tell
1: us how poetry can heal.
3: Um, I think writing can heal if you do it my way. (laughs) (laughs) No, here's what doesn't heal. What doesn't heal is the thing that you said before about, you know, the divorce poems, where if you just say, I hate you, and I'm sad, and I hate you, and blah, 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 you know. I mean, if you need to do that, do that. But I don't think that's really that healing. I think what heals is to actually go back in the moment and have the sensual felt bodily experience and go through it in that way and be um, paying attention to what's there, not what you think is there, not your preconceived idea of what it is, but what actually is, kind of moment by moment and discovering. Like, like the giraffe peeing poem, like don't, you know, edit and, and filter out the awkward, weird that doesn't belong here stuff, But if you and don't preconceive it, but if you actually go into the moment, the real moment, and let it be all that it is, including the stuff that doesn't seem like it even belongs there, and then dig into that, I think that can be healing. Mm.
1: Yeah. Um, do people have questions for Allison?
2: Yeah. I'm really wondering how you structure your day as a writer.
3: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Looking for your... T- <laughs> Structure, me, day. huh? Uh, well, there's this um, young woman up the street, and she and I have made a date to go walking every morning. It's at, Not every morning, two mornings a week at 7. I'm trying to get out there at 7.30 so I can walk. Um, I wake up, I try and get up early because my husband leaves for work very early. So I want to make sure I see him before he leaves. So if I can get up by 6.30 and you know have some coffee and a few moments of conversation, that's great. Um, If I can get a little walk-in, that's really good to be moving and out and in the neighborhood. Um, And then I'm at my desk. And the best way for me to write is to read first. So on a good day, you know, on a really good day, which is not all the days, I read, you know, uh, some poems before I get going. You know, but I, I have... Other stuff that I need to get to, you know, I have, like, student work I have to look at and lesson planning and emails I have to, you know. So it's hard to preserve the little bit of creative time and try and do that first. I'm I'm not always successful, but I think if you can get to the creative stuff before you do all the other work stuff, it's good. But I do have a lot of that other work stuff, too. So morning is kind of your time. Yeah, but I'm not fussy. I mean, I've, I will write anywhere. You know, I mean, I've, I used to write in my car a lot in parking lots. I had a, a little essay I wrote about writing in parking lots. Like, I would just have a notebook with me and, you know, if while I'm procrastinating, you know, doing an errand or coming back from an errand. You know, or um, I'm not picky. It could be on BART. It could be on an airplane. It, yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. Another question?
1: Robin Birdfeather.
3: What a great name.
2: Uh, Hi, I'm wondering if you're more comfortable, let's see, um, writing by hand or with a a computer. computer or just in your mind and then whatever comes next.
3: I think my favorite thing is the hand, you know, handwriting. I don't, I mean, the computer's faster, and I revise on the computer, and there's obviously, it's more convenient because then you can send it to your friend and pester her with five million emails saying, don't read that last one, read this one. No, I revised it. You know. <laughs> Don't open that last one I sent. Wait, I revised it again. You know, so the computer's better for that because if you had to send those letters, it would be really expensive. But so you know, I tr- I, I believe in writing by hand. I think it's a it's a good practice. I don't want to lose the ability to actually handwrite, um, and then and then I take it to the computer.
0: You are listening to a conversation with poet Alison Luderman and Erwin Keller. Before you're holding something, or...?
3: Yeah, I get an idea for something. It's, you know, I start writing in my head, but then by the time I actually find my notebook and find my pen, because it is difficult for me to find things, um, then, you know, I've, sometimes I still have it, and sometimes it's changed.
1: I'm curious, does the other work stuff?
3: Oh, um, well, I teach. I teach at um, Writing Salon, and so I email my students, I'm mentoring some people. I coach some people. I'm um, producing a little segment of the musical that I wrote, and so there's a lot of communication that has to happen with that. I, um, I you
1: want to tell us for a minute about the musical? Oh yeah, I, wrote a, I co-wrote a musical.
3: It. it was it's about um, kidney transplantation. <laughs> it's about it's called the chain. <laughs> uh, It was about
1: time someone.
3: Yeah, it was (laughs) crying to be written. Okay, so five years ago, uh, the New York Times, uh, Sunday Times, there was an article about the largest kidney chain ever. It was like 60 people, it was crisscrossing the country, and it was, you know, like say you needed a kidney and your beloved wanted to give you a kidney, was willing to give you a kidney, but you're not medically compatible. So your beloved gives her or his kidney to somebody else, and their friend or partner or somebody gives to somebody else, and ultimately you end up with a compatible kidney. But, so it's like blood banking, except it all has to happen at the same time. Unlike blood banking where you can just bank it for a couple weeks, or however long they can bank it. So, so this was an incredible feat of coordination that would not have been possible before all the computer, you know, computerized medical records. And it crisscrossed all these boundaries, and that's what I love—is that cultural thing. So there was like a truck driver in Texas giving a kidney to you know a nun in New York, who you know, and there's a housewife in Poughkeepsie giving a kidney to you know uh, somebody in Ohio, and and it was just going crossing racial, and anyway, I thought this would be a great musical. And I don't know why nobody else thought that because it was so glaringly obvious to me. So I convinced a friend of mine who's a composer to be my composer on it and we wrote songs together and we pieced together this musical and, um, and very sadly he died um, in December and I'm continuing on with, you know, kind of birthing the musical. Yeah.
1: There was another question.
3: Chuck
0: uh allison was uh, gracious enough to give me some poetry lessons a few years ago which i'll never forget and uh, i remember one of them i asked you what what it was that made you a distinctive poet or something like that to yourself and you said well the thing that i seem to be able to do is to ride a metaphor." Huh. I can take the, I can take a metaphor and ride it to the end, so i 'm just curious if <laughs> I you did, have any, I said that. You did. So I'm true? just curious if you have anything else to say about that
3: Oh my God, this is the thing about getting older. You say all kinds of stuff and you don 't remember any of it. Has anybody else had that experience? like God knows the things i 've said, and then other people remember them what you said. Um, yeah, well, I think I can write a metaphor. I don't think I have, like, the best vocabulary in the world, but I think that I can turn, you know, find, like, I'll work the metaphor all the way around. You know, I don't, it, it, the metaphors are not just decoration for me. They're actually the substructure as well as the, you know, they're, they go all the way through. Yeah, that's the best. But I don't think I'm the only person that can do that. I mean, a lot of poets do that. Do you,
0: do you see that having a relation? Jazz improvisation, for example?
1: The question is...
3: Yes, jazz improvisation. The question's about, is that like jazz improv... Yeah, because a jazz musician will take a theme and then riff on it and, you know, do it, you know, stretch it out and do it this way and do it that way and come back to it. Yeah, exactly. I love that. I love
4: jazz. Yeah.
1: Okay, Rebecca? Rebecca Del Rio? Hi, it's... Is this on? Yeah. Great.
4: Okay. It's wonderful to meet you. Thank um, you. You mentioned that uh, you'll have an idea yeah. in your head that you're kind of ruminating and thinking about, and then you'll start to write things down. I'm wondering, what's the longest you've carried something? Oh, A very long time. Oh, that makes me feel so <laughs> <good>. So long. <laughs> <laughs> so long. Yay. Years?
3: Ten, ten decades.
0: Yay. Thank yeah. you. No.
3: So <laughs> long. <laughs> Some things are not ready until they're ready. They're, nothing is ready till it's ready. And some things take a really long time to get ready.
1: Do you have a, do you have a recent example of this?
3: Um, well, I have an old example of it, which is the Ballad of Greg Withrow, which is in um, the first book, which is a poem told from the point, the, the viewpoint, the vo- in the voice of this guy, Greg Withrow, who is a white supremacist. And I... Um, carried around a People magazine where I had read the article about him. I carried it around for literally 15 years before I could write that. And I tried to write the poem several times, and it never came out right until I realized I had to write it in his voice. But it took me multiple attempts over many years, and I just didn't have the voice. And then once I got the voice, the poem came pretty easily, but it just took forever.
1: It's a beautiful poem.
3: Thank you. Can we hear it? Sure. Yeah, I'm happy to do that one. It has bad words in it. Is that okay for your, um, your podcast?
1: Yes. Really? Do we?
3: Yeah, you're going to have to bleep some things. Yeah, there's some bleeping stuff in here um, for sure. Um, let's see, where is it? Okay, so this is called The Ballad of Greg Withrow. Greg Withrow was a young neo-Nazi who organized the white supremacist student movement in Sacramento in the 1980s. When his first love affair caused him to spontaneously turn away from hate, his own troops came after him. So in the 80s, he was organizing. I, I probably read the article about him in, in the 80s. before. I know it was in Boston before I came to California. I came to California in 1990. This book was published in 2001. So it was about 15 years that I carried this around. One, love blindsided me crept up in those dumb white sneakers they make waitresses wear. This girl said, you seem like such a nice guy. And she put eggs in front of me. I ate them, though by then I was such a mess of mud inside, I couldn't hardly speak human. Dirt with a pile of eggs in front of it. Except she smiled or something. So I went back, went back for her smile and her number. Love crept up on dirt. Two, She was new to town and didn't know. She never seen the likes of what I was up to. My job, big man on the hate rodeo. Ride into town, get the white kids fired up, telling them how the niggers and spicks and Jews had all the money, all the jobs, why they weren't getting any. Under my direction, a few black heads might get smashed like pumpkins the day after Halloween or the body of some gook show up in the tall weeds outside of town with no one but his family to count him missing, and them not even able to tell the cops in proper English. I wanted to be like Hitler, or better yet, Genghis Khan. Three. She didn't have family neither, and my old man used to like to kick me downstairs from when I could walk. Until one night, he kicked me out entirely. On the streets, the Nazis was family. They took me in because I was Aryan, white, like them. And we was going to someday ride again. Four, what happened before doesn't matter. What happened after, I take as payment on debts past due. But I'll tell you something. Love opens you up, worse than a knife. I've been stomped with steel-toed boots, punched in the stomach, had my head swung into a wall, into a toilet. Love is worse. There's nothing to hold on to. Five. See, we was family to each other. She had no idea. She didn't know. Little by little, love was ruining me. How could I eat her eggs and go out afterward and preach, kill the nigger, kill? I'd lift my head, and it was another man, a black man, eating his eggs with maybe someone who loved him, waiting at home in their bed for him to make her warm. And I couldn't do it. Love was ruining me. Six, I tried to get away quiet, out by the back door, but hate Hate really does not want to let you go. It thinks it owns you. And I owed something now, would have to pay. Still, when they came for me, I was not ready. Came with their baseball bats and smashed my jaw so I couldn't talk to no more reporters and say that hate thing was a mistake. After, I wouldn't tell police who done it. Hell, it was me who done it. I trained me to come after me in the middle of the night and leave me in a pool of my own blood. That's who done it. Seven, when I turned on her, she left, and I don't blame her. I 'd have drove her to the station myself if I knew what come next. After the news that night, when I kept on telling the wrong I'd done and that I was sorry, they got me good nailed me to a six-foot piece of wood like the savior of hell, and I come stumbling down the streets of Sacramento, the nails in my hands and blood running down my side, and the white folks passed me by. Like this, I know God has a plan, and nothing happens that he don't see, because my own people, they were afraid, I think. The Aryan nation had warned me I was as good as dead already. And then the black people come, and the man says, is this who I think? And the woman says, we got to take him down. And the man says, hell, we got to. Do you know who this is? And she says, of course I know. Everyone in this town that's got a radio or television knows. Jesus, Lord, have mercy. Help me with these nails. And like this, I come to speak before you, except I cannot talk right on account of the jaw still being wired, and because I don't know hardly what to say anymore. When I hated, I knew. Now I don't know nothing except the things I told you. Love opens you up worse than a knife.
1: How do, you, how do you write that
3: um, you try really hard for 15 years <laughs> you fail a lot <laughs> and you carry the same damn uh, article that you ripped from the People magazine but around it's it's with you. also such such a tour de force of empathy
1: mm. right to be able to see in this person to see yourself to have be able to see mm. yourself enough to be able to voice him
3: right. Well, you know, what got me about the story, the article, that he was crucified and, um, you know, and then the black couple took him down from the cross. And that image was just so potent. And um, there's a kind of thought that's like Jesus or God or anybody is not out there, it's in here, you know, so we are all called to become Buddha, you know, we're all, you know, and we're all called to be, you know, we have to go through everything we have to go through to get there, yeah, but thank you, thank you, I know that was a compliment, thank you, (laughs) (laughs) let me take the compliment, (laughs) but yeah, Yeah. well, I think it's, you know, I wish that poem were less relevant than it is still relevant now, yeah, I wish that it weren't,
1: and in terms of the, the healing, the healing qualities of poetry, for those of us I mean, some people in the room write, but for those of us who don't write poetry, to be able to learn from that sort of, mm-hmm. um, you know, that, that deep empathy mm-hmm. um, and to sort of put that into practice mm-hmm. as a healing mechanism in the world that we're living in right
3: mm-hmm.
1: now. Because mm-hmm. um, we are at a point where we, you know, each half of the country vilifies the other. I know. And, and what do you do with that?
3: Um, I know. If we, we have to start talking to each other. And I say that, but it's not, I don't know that I am it, able to do it yet.
1: You know, I say that all the time, and then I think to myself, but I don't want to. Right. I, I don't want to. Do
3: I don't want to. And there, are, yeah. And, but it needs to happen. And if not us, who, right?
1: Um, oh, we have a, a couple. Let's try to do a couple more questions, because we started a little bit late. Oh, uh, we, have, we have Barbara and Susie, and I don't know your name.
4: Thank you so much. You talked about your day getting grounded by reading poetry. Yeah. And I think we all look at, you know, who are your influences? Yeah. But I'm more interested in who is got a voice that resonates for you, that helps you in your writing. And in, in so many ways, I kept thinking, my first trip to Mama Bear's, I got to meet Judy Gron and yeah. her common women yeah, poems. Those are incredible poems. Which in so many ways... I love those poems. ...resonate yeah. with the, the kind of qualities of empathy and, and passion that you're talking about. So yeah. I'm interested in who else to add to the list. I'm with so many
3: people. And I know that whoever I say, I'm going to be leaving out so many because I just off the top of my head. Right this moment, I'm really interested in Marie Howe. I love her pieces. I just love her so much. Her work is magic. There's, uh, She's great. Um, I love my friend Ellen Bass, of course. Um, um, my friend Ruth Schwartz. I mean, I read a lot of my friends. <laughs> Um, Tess Gallagher has been a really important voice for me over the years. She does this weird cause-effect thing with, she's, she's a mystic. You know, like Marie, they're both kind of, they have a little bit of a foot in the mystic world. They're not Jewish but, and so it's a different kind of mysticism, but um, it changes. I mean I'm always looking for new people. I, I really like this guy Gregory Pardlow who won the Pulitzer Prize a couple years ago and um, I try to stretch myself to read people that are a little bit, out, you know, because I could read women of my general, you know, outlook and age, and, and it's very comfortable, and I resonate with that so much, their content so much. But it's good for me to stretch and read other people. I mean, I think Hamilton is brilliant. Um, so you know, I also include songs and um, all that stuff. My my reading really is wide. Tony Hoagland is a, you know, incredible, so good, yeah. Um, My question is, do you find that these times that we're in are fruitful for your writing or stop you dead in your tracks? (laughs) Both. Um, Right after the election, I was a mess. I was in shock. I was... I don't even know what I was. I was. It was like you know, heavy grief. It was like shock. I felt like I'd just been run over by a truck. And I don't think I wrote anything very meaningful for a month. I don't remember. I really, it's a blur. Um, I wrote stuff on Facebook, and then I got like super. Like we have to fix this now. We have to fix this yesterday. You know, and and my oldest daughter stuff kicked in. It was like, how could I have let this happen on my watch? I mean, it was ridiculous. The stuff that. And um, uh, so, but then now, right now, I'm finding I'm writing political poems. And I wrote one that went, uh, it was on Rattle a couple weeks ago, the Rattle website. If you go to Rattle and Google my name in Rattle, you'll find it. It's called What We Did in the Resistance, Part One. Mm. And it's been making the rounds. So so that, and, I'm you know, another one came today just as I was in, you know, this afternoon. So I think that, now that it's I've had a chance to sort of integrate the catastrophe a little bit as much as I can the poems are starting to come but the first couple of weeks I, you know, I I wrote screeds on Facebook and that's about it. I don't write all the time. I mean I, you know, I go in and out.
1: You had a question?
3: Yeah, as you were talking
2: about your neighborhood and then this last poem about the about the uh, newspaper article you carried around or the magazine article um, when I was around the East Bay last year a lot reading East Bay Express and the article came out about your neighborhood I believe or close to your neighborhood on um, the nextdoor postings hmm you're familiar with that yeah and, and I, then I'm and a the,
3: member of nextdoor Harrington or whatever yeah
2: yeah and the the amazing things that were happening with the neighbors talking about each other, the different races being, yeah. you know, all this stuff. I just wondered if that entered your life and it entered your poetry and your whole neighborhood walk and, and just the whole thing of living there. Like you say, you love being there. You've been there a long time, but you wonder if you'll be moving too.
3: Yeah, I <laughs> mean, know? I love it, and it's, sometimes it's hard. It's like a lot of things. You know, there's really great things about it, and there's not so great things. I love it that I'm in the mix with a lot of people from very different backgrounds than myself, and I say hi to them. You know, I, it's very simple, you know, just walking around and saying hi to whoever crosses my path. That's my, you know, that's what I do. And um, somehow in this political climate, that seems like a good thing to do. Um,
1: and, it, and, a, and a political act.
3: In its own special way, yeah. I think, I think so. I, you know, yeah. And the hard thing is like... Um, you know when it's hot out and the cars are going by with the rap music you know cranked up to the level of deafening and you know my you know it's coming in and it's like one in the morning and you know and it's really loud and we can't sleep that happens you know there's uh, theft I mean I was having coffee at a coffee shop in my neighborhood with a friend and there was a woman at the next table who was working on her laptop and two guys busted into the coffee shop yanked the Laptop, uh, She was on the lap. Was, it was under her fingers, and they yanked it and ran. And I, like, ran after them. A bunch of people from the coffee shop ran after them, and they jumped in a car, and they were gone. So, like, that happens, you know. Whereas when I, like, when we went out to dinner, like, I went to the bathroom. I, did, I left my bag on the, you know, on the chair.
1: And she's got great stuff in
3: her purse. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, really great. That stuff. happens. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's mixed. I mean, I, you know.
1: Um, it's been um, really wonderful reconnecting with you because we haven't seen each other in many years. Many years. And having you here, and I, I said this at, di- at dinner and I want to say it again is that I, I feel so proud of you um, oh. and what you've brought into the world um, for us.
3: Oh, Irwin.
1: Um, and I, uh, I wanted to ask if we could close with a, uh, this poem called um, Language Acquisition.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: <laughs> um, because it covers in a short poem, really, it's like a sweep of the experience of life, of, of, mm. of who we are um, in the different stages of our lives. Um, and it does it so eloquently and so succinctly. And it feels like um, it's what I want to leave the room with. It's the flavor I want on my tongue.
3: Okay. Okay, this is uh, about my little niece, Anna, who's now 13, so she's speaking quite well now. But when she was three, um, it's called Language Acquisition. She has blossomed into complication. My niece, not yet three, has learned to say Either. I don't like the scary skeleton, and I don't like scary pirates, either. In 20 years, she'll be standing, head cocked, in front of a a rack of paint samples, saying, I don't really like the burgundy, but the rust is not quite right, either. And from there, of course, it's only a short step to, I don't want to lose you, but I don't want to be utterly consumed by this love either, and from there, and from then on, well, we all know how the skeins get tangled, don't we? We who are no longer little children, yet not wholly grown up either. (laughs)
1: I'd like to thank Allison Luterman for spending this time with us. This is the New thank School you. at Commonweal Sonoma Series. Thank you, Allison.
0: Thank you, Irwin. You've been listening to a conversation with poet Allison Luterman and host Irwin Keller. Thank you for listening to TNS, The New School at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams, and our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Thanks for listening.